0: Hey, welcome back to the Joker's Podcast. This is attempt three of recording this episode. It's been one hell of a journey to try and get it done. Today, I'm following up on more military-style topics. I guess at this point, that's not really all that surprising, but here we are anyway. Today, I want to particularly take a look at how the media portrays the military, how they could over-exaggerate things, glorify dangerous or unrealistic moments, and how the media can condemn one person to being an enemy or an adversary when really there's nothing that could make them, you know, really seem all that bad, maybe they're just fighting for whatever they believe in, and then home country just like, yeah, no, that is the ways of, I had the word in my head, I was going to be all fancy and wordy with it, but (laughs) yeah, no. I guess not. But one thing that uh, I want to add on to that is those those are the three things that I find are most predominant that are like up front and there that everyone notices. But no one really takes into account how the media avoids certain things like death tolls or why things happened just in general avoiding certain topics and certain actions that are taken so Yeah, well, let's get into it. All right. So, the first ideas that I want to express, those first three that I was talking about the exaggeration, the glorification, and condemnation, I'm going to use uh, a couple of films for that. And then go on my own little tears about it a little bit later on. The two films that I want to particularly have a look at is Midway and 13 Hours. Out of the two, I like 13 Hours better. Seen it a couple times. Midway's newer. I feel like it does a not bad job of really demonstrating how some things happened. But then there are other moments that are just ridiculous. There is about no other way to put it. No, I'm not sick. Just my nose is running like a faucet. I think it's from like how the studio is right now. Anyways... When we jump into it, I wanna start out with how I feel about Midway. New movie does not bad job of demonstrating how some things were taken into accord, how I don't know. Really how Uh, the chain of command used to be and how some of it started like you can put things together yourself and try and collect it. But, you know, half the time you count on the film to tell you why things started. We'll open with exaggerations that I noted. Exaggerations... Really kind of close to the beginning of the movie because in the beginning of the movie you're a couple years prior talking with some other uh, important people who would be key to the rest of the movie. So the beginning of the movie was just giving context and kind of like a precursor as to what was happening in the era. Followed by uh, just seeing a couple of pilots working off of their air carriers, aircraft carriers, and really just seeing what their life would be like. Getting some context there. Except for a couple of scenes. Particularly when... Uh, I forget his name. The main protagonist there. That uh, dive bomber pilot. He cuts the engine and he doesn't radio in and he doesn't have clearance to do an unprotocol landing onto the actual carrier and he just does that completely recklessly and does his own thing. There's a chain of command that you have to follow and you have to get permission from first. You can't just do something. That's not how it goes. So, the first one that I particularly noted was that, and then after that, once they get out of the aircraft and they're on the carrier safely, I'm throwing and using safely very loosely in this scenario, his actions were completely without reprimand. In fact, half of the crew idolized him as, like, a terrific pilot and such a good guy. When really he followed zero chain of command. He just kind of went out and did his own thing and whatever the hell he wanted to. That's not a good thing. Then you get a little bit later into the film this is moving on past the uh, the pilots and the carriers. They get a call in that Pearl is being attacked by the Japanese. And when I say Pearl, I'm referring to Pearl Harbor. It's a very accurate scene. I would think I wasn't there myself. I can't really say that. Yeah. This was what happened. This is how it happened. But. In my mind. That's pretty realistic. (sighs) Some boats were sinking. Lots of fire. Lots of casualties. Military and civilian. Because those docks were. Pretty well opened up. I think there was supposed to be some kind of festivities going on, actually. Or at least that's how it seemed in the film. The every man for himself type actions that some of those men took, though. That's not very accurate. It was all having to be, everything's militarized. You're due for that. That's how the quo was. You're expected to serve your duty and your time. And that's not really up to any of the soldiers. That's just how it was. So taking all that into account, it really pains me to say, but that part isn't all that realistic. There were lots of scenes that a CO would just stay behind And stay on a ship fighting. It doesn't really seem all that realistic. If you have to abandon ship. You have to abandon ship. (sighs) They have ground to air stuff. Back off the ships. Not as good as stuff. But. They would have artillery. Back on base. And at the height of World War II, when I say the height, that's pretty loosely as well. In general, World War Two was coming to a close in terms of, like, how things were lasting. But nobody knows that right now. So, that's a lot of things that I would think to take a look at. And upon having the bodies recovered from there, I'm sure that there were a lot more casualties than what was let on. You were taken into a uh, scene where one of the officers was looking for another officer. And sure, it seemed like there were a lot of bodies, but I feel like those bodies could be almost stacked on top of each other at that point, maybe in layers of threes. There were a lot of casualties. You can't just throw them all in a small room like that and say that that's all that you found. There's definitely going to be more than that without a doubt and then there's a scene where it says the officers were put over here and in this particular scenario they're looking at some charred remains i don't know how you're supposed to define that some charred remains without anything specific left to mark them as a CO is definitive to yes, this was a CO. So in my mind, that's pretty unrealistic. How can you define that it's a CO just from a charred out body that's been terribly burnt? You can't make You can't put a face to a name. You don't have prints. You don't have DNA to ID them. Not to mention a DNA record would take a couple days. And even then you would have a name for them. And you could put a name to a face because that is the ID that you've put on their DNA. But no, these are just corpses or remains that are covered with some simple cloth, and the fact that they're looking at this set of charred remains and then all of a sudden they bring out this shiny grad ring, um, put two and two together. My thoughts on that are pretty self-explanatory. You're looking at a body that's really only burnt out pieces of flesh and bone. And you whip out the shiny grad ring. Something doesn't add up. You can't have a shiny brand new looking grad ring. When you have a body that looks like that, it's not the same. From there, right up until there was some actual dive bombing that was acted on from the uh the pilots back on the naval carriers there wasn't too terrible much for exaggeration it all seemed pretty well up to code up to par once you get to some of the dive bombing that's executed later, having a look at some of those altitudes and having to use an old school yoke like that, not to mention the lack of g-force training, those are some pretty crazy altitudes to be taking that on. That's something that even pilots to date in our modern uh, aircraft. That's, that's a feat. Definitely something to be recognized as well. So dropping to crazy low altitudes, And then miraculously pulling on that yoke hard enough that you'll be able to start leveling out rather than gaining altitude. That's pretty close to impossible, not to mention the G's that you would be exerting on yourself and the co-pilot at that point. Like, they don't have G-suits. Back then, it was your standard issue um, fatigues and some air that was actually in the aircraft. And that is on a limited supply. That's all things that you've got to take into consideration. So, yeah, dropping down to something around like 700 feet, while still flying that fast and carrying a payload. That's pretty unrealistic. And then from then on out, there's not really all that much I can say. Like I said, it's a pretty good movie. There's a lot of really good parts in it that are quite realistic. However, there's an extent to how much you can just throw in there and hope that people don't notice. (laughs) right out of the gate when you're throwing counter-commands at a CO. That will immediately throw up some red flags, like be cautious, don't fully trust it. But it does a pretty good job, in my mind at least. That's all covering exaggeration and lots of the glorification that's in there. Now, I'm going to jump to Condemnation. Right at the very beginning of the film, that intelligence guy and the admiral of the Japanese, they were talking about trying, trying to avoid a war. That immediately in itself is basically saying bad things are coming. It is saying there is going to be a war at some point or another, there is going to be a conflict. that in itself defined half the movie they were condemning themselves to having to write a war scene right from the moment that they decided that they were going to put that clip in there i don't know if i could find the quote but i'm not sure that that's the right thing to do at this current time this is my opinion on everything what happened in that scene set itself up the rest of it was all already in motion there's no way you could avoid that so that's what i saw like right out of the beginning I didn't take note of much else for condemnation in there. I'm sure there's more. If any of my listeners feel like having a look at that and looking into it, be my guest. Feel free to shoot me a message about it or leave it in the comments. I would be happy to see what you guys have seen. Flipping over to the avoidance side of things. It was never fully expressed why Pearl happened. Like I had said right at the beginning of this episode here. It wasn't explained. But then again, you can still put two and two together. And, you know, get to the point where it's like, hey don't be a dummy, this is where it started. Another thing that I noticed, and I've already stated it, not following a proper chain of command. If you don't follow a chain of command, the realism factor drops down to next to nil. It's gone. What can you do past that point? Like just say, oh yeah, that's completely okay. Sure. I'm sure it is. Not. for anyone that has actually served or seen something that's even remotely realistic, there is ways that things are executed. And lots of it is based around chain of command. And not following it, well, you kinda got to expect something to come around your way anyway. Another thing that I don't feel like it's fully mentioned properly, like right at the end of the film, yeah, you have a brief look at how some families are affected by the deaths of uh, men who have served and been Killed in action or injured in action. But I don't think people really get a full spectrum of how bad things could really go. Like, that's still a member of your family. Think about this for a second. Think about one of your family members. Going off to serve, followed by an attack on your home front, like almost right on your front doorstep, home front, and then getting a letter days later saying, Your family member is not coming home. The devastation that is within that is brutal. But I don't think it's really expressed all that well, honestly. I feel like it could be expressed better. Fuller. But it's not. That's the gist of it. The media doesn't talk about how bad something could really be because that'll throw people away from the military. Immediately. They won't talk about how devastating PTSD could be, how likely you are to die. They won't talk about that. Immediately after they do. They'll start losing people that had been planning to enlist. It's devastating, particularly to the families and to the service in itself. The media won't portray something that could hurt the economy of the military when the the military discloses certain information and is very careful about what they disclose. And, you know, basically has... An unspoken contract with the media to deem what can and cannot be said through their services. So there's all of that to take into consideration when it comes to avoidance. Glorification. You've got your heroes for doing stuff that is reckless and stupid. You've got your exaggerations that are completely blown out of proportion or that just aren't realistic, period. And then you've got the condemnation. Like, you're admitting to something going wrong before it's gone wrong. You're throwing something out there that is hearsay and just going after it, basically throwing the ideas of, well, everyone out there and saying, there isn't a war going on right now, but there will be. You just wait. What do you do? Like, it's all set out in front of you. That has been Midway. And the first segment. We'll see you in the second one with 13 hours. Welcome to part two of the Joker's podcast in media and the military. I know it was only a half hour that I recorded, but I went and I took a quick little break so I can get some food in me. But this one, we're gonna be taking a look at uh, 13 Hours, another really great film. When I say another, I already told you which one's my preference. However, that is not the point. We're going to be covering the same topics for the same reasons. Pretty straightforward. Alright, so what I want to get to with this is first off, again, we'll go with the exaggerations. As per most war films, there's always the exaggerations of explosives. They always want to have it with all those big booms and blasts and explosions and fire and pyro all over the place. When in reality, an actual explosion... Just looks like a geyser of dirt. Geyser of dirt. Upon impact. Unless it's specifically designed to throw fire everywhere. Which is kind of gone out of style since World War Two. Once you get into the more action type scenes, instead of like what would seem like a filler scene. You get to a point where we're looking at armored cars. Sure, bulletproof glass is great and all. But it's bulletproof. Not grenade proof. Bulletproof also implies that it can be shot, and not fully broken or penetrated, but it is going to to sustain damage. You look at some of the damage that was hit into the SUV. The ones with the glass, it's pretty hard to replicate what bulletproof glass does without actually shooting it. I mean, they may have had rubber bullets, but not likely. But there would be a larger shatter in the actual glass. But you look at how the bullets were ricocheting off of The outside of that armored Mercedes. An AK-47 is renowned for its stopping power. And how big of a bullet that it's actually firing. Mix that with how close range it is. Sure, you have an armored vehicle. But some of those rounds, the vast majority of those rounds, aren't just going to, you know, slough off the side and just take off some of the paint. That's not how armored vehicles work. They're going to take some damage, but if you put a bullet at the radiator, you're still getting that bullet through the radiator. Just throwing it out there. Then you get to one of the scenes where a guy is one-handing an AK. Huh? That doesn't... If you can one-hand an AK, I'm terrified of what you can do with your bare hands. Recoil is still huge. There are certain adaptations that you can put onto that AK-47 to use it as a semi-automatic sniper rifle. That is a semi-automatic rifle. It is an assault rifle, not an SMG. There's a right way and a wrong way to demonstrate how a big guy can handle a bigger gun. but that was the wrong way to do it. One-handing an AK is incredibly unrealistic. Bless me for a second. Geez, I just can't win in this recording. That's all of my attempts have had one sneeze in them. Just one and then gone. Love it. In any case, I really couldn't stop watching the film so it was hard to jot down all the things that could be noted as exaggerations. They say that this is based off of a true story. Again, I feel like it's very unrealistic to have a guy just in the background, one-handing an AK. If it did happen, then props to the guy that did it. And if you could share with the rest of the world what you're doing, I'm sure many of us would appreciate it. Because we all want to see that and actually have proof of it. But then again, kind of doubt that this will, you know, reach that member. There is a lot of cases where. people could be overstating what reality was in that scenario. I feel like a couple of those previous ones were perfect examples of that. You want glorification? Well, there's certainly a bunch of that. American made film with American soldiers. Hate to call you out here, guys, but the films didn't do you full justice. I recognize that the chain of command applies to you a lot less because you're contractors, but you're still on a CIA base that is supposed to be super... Discreet and high ops. So, yeah. When you have a reckless alpha that isn't following chain of command very well, it kind of begs the question of how realistic that is. Sure, in the film and in the actual story in itself. It's warranted, but in any other case, you wouldn't be looked at as a hero for that. You'd be looking at it as putting your guys in danger as well as the covert ops of the CIA in the area. So that's something that should be taken into consideration. another exaggeration that i keep finding is you have one little citadel full of white people and i'm not saying that to be racist i'm saying that to be realistic you have one citadel full of white people next to an empty american embassy because there's conflicts going on in a very, very disturbed and al-Qaeda-run or ISIS-run town. And your base is secret. Okay. Sure. Definitely going to give that to you. But, I will say as well. Yes, that could be there. There could be allies within the town. But still, your base is not very secret. <laughs> your secret base is pretty out in the open. pretty straightforward. If they wanted to attack a full base, they could do it at their begging please. So, yeah, there's that. Another thing that is glorified and a bit Eh, a bit. Very minuscule amount of exaggeration behind it, in my mind. Is the military experience aspect, and the comments when they're running. Like, when there was a confrontation, while they were out, uh, trying to collect intel. The lady says, this is my third tour he goes the other main protagonist is like this is my 13th i didn't realize that this was a competition of whose penis is larger but i guess there it is in the middle of a firefight you got some comedic relief And in the military, I could totally justify the fact that you need some comedic relief through those high energy and tough times. But I feel like just because you have that many more tours doesn't mean that you've seen anything different from your first three. You're just seeing it over and over and over and over again. It's the same terror, it's the same firefights. Sure, you may recognize some things because there have been different scenarios to get to those same firefights. But it's still the same firefights. You're still getting shot at. There are still people trying to take your life. And you're trying to take theirs. You're just in a race to see who does it first. So, yes, there is some experience there, and it's all within reason, like someone who's had a few more tours would be able to recognize some things maybe a little bit faster, or maybe you just have a fast learner on your hands that's only been there for three tours that is still just as good. In this case, the lady was oblivious. But it's not about the tours that you've served. You've been there. You've witnessed the hardships. You've lived them. Not discrediting someone who's been on 23 tours. Versus someone that was on two tours. You kept being deployed for a reason because you were able to make it out. Maybe that person that went on two tours didn't make it out unscathed. Maybe the person that made it out of two tours completely unscathed has nothing compared to the person with 23 tours. Maybe they were just sitting back as intel. Or waiting as reserve infantry. That wasn't called into action directly. There are all kinds of different ways that you could interpret it. But that's how it is another thing that I would like to take into account is what happens later with the person who's at the head of command for the CIA at that base I forget what they addressed him as but Action versus caution, especially when you have your objective being under fire and under attack at one of your compounds. You should execute caution while taking action, not just execute caution while hiding. I understand they were more there for intel and collecting what intel it is to be had but you've got people there as support for a reason. That reason is throwing itself out there in every kind of color and you're sitting still. If you were to fail the objective in the mission that is at hand then it's that CEO's fault. That is their fault, because they wouldn't respond at the call to action. If you're in a certain scenario, and you are under fire, and you are being attacked, it is your job to let the higher-ups know that you are under attack, and... The commanding officer that is on the field at the time is going to take command. That's the right way to do it. If they didn't take command eventually, if they didn't eventually get around to that action, they'd have been sitting ducks. You've got two embassies with American allies. That's it. Two compounds. Versus countless, countless people that are all with a resistance force. And that guy's action was to take caution. There is some glorification behind taking action or leading with caution. There's glorification that could be had in each way. That CEO could be glorified because of his, of how stern he was and how serious he was about maintaining his status and maintaining his command of standing down there could be some glory behind that it's admirable even when everyone was going against him he stood his ground and maintained his command that's good on him for that however recognizing that they need to take action and taking action regardless of what the guy said. You got to imagine, you're just looking at that and going, wow, that's the hero. That's definitely the hero in this case. There's an extent to where that's realistic. Lots of it is glorified, like... Yeah, this guy's the hero because he did this. You got to remember that these guys are all ex-military. They don't have to follow the chain of command, but they will. If they want to keep their contract. It's also putting a huge hero label on being... A mercenary of being a contractor that's a lot of hearsay that will be surrounding all that same principle i'm sure you could ask an actual contractor what it's like out in the field, and they would give you a bit of a different answer every time. But as much as they were in the force and they were Marines and they were Rangers, or they were SEALs, That's a big step above all that. There's a lot of things that really just don't fully add up. I'm going to jump over to condemnation now. The first step that I want to address is the 17th Feb. the local forces. The fact that they were poorly trained, if trained at all, that is the first piece of condemnation. That is basically saying that their forces are weak, and that they're going to be of no use to the actual uh, the U.S. bases. So that was stating that they were going to be so helpful. Right from the very beginning. Which. Yeah. There's. There's not much else you can say about that. It was stating right from go. That. The local forces were going to be useful, quote-unquote. And then... Right at the very beginning, it was also stated that there was a lack of government assistance and that the military was a lot less concerned with this, quote unquote, yeah, I'm going to keep throwing this out there, secret CIA base. I'm sure the military didn't know about it, honestly. Why would they know about it? It's a small base in Libya that the CIA knows about, that they have contracted military people, therefore. Saying that there's a lack of assistance headed into a high conflict area with. No actual marines. Like. Stationed military. That's. That's a big problem. That is. Saying already that. They're not going to be getting any help. At any type of light speed. If something goes down. That's saying that there's going to be a brutal firefight. And some very risky and dangerous moments right out of the get-go. CIA also stands for Central Intelligence Agency. What about that screams military force? I'm just going to let you think about that for a sec. Now, I understand that the CIA is trained to use weapons and armament, but they're an intelligence agency. It's not their daily lives to... live out these firefights and take on these conflicts straight on that's not what they're there for they're there to collect intelligence and then send it back to homeland so if they were to go under attack like they did And they have no military personnel to back them up, except for a dozen-odd contractors. Again, condemnation. You're setting yourself up for failure. So there's that. And next I'm gonna cover avoidance. With the avoidance that's stayed stated in this, you gotta look at it a certain way. What are they trying to not tell you? They're pretty straightforward about how it would affect their families and home lives since they're just contractors and how they are in a dangerous area. They said that pretty well. I was pretty impressed about that, but... stating the obvious when they abandon their objective particularly of protecting that ambassador that's a problem I realize that they're not military and I'll say it again and again and again They're not military anymore. They're ex-military. But it doesn't mean that they don't have objectives themselves. And they're under contract to act as if they were still military. They abandoned the objective of protecting the ambassador and recovering the ambassador. I understand the situation was difficult, but likely, later on, there will be reprimand for that. But they're avoiding talking about it. I understand they're dealing with the many issues that they have on hand, but that's still a piece of intel that they lost that was huge. And it's lost. Not marked KIA, but MIA. They keep trying to throw out there, no one could survive that, no one could survive that. And we find that nearing the end of the film, someone survived that, someone survived that. As military personnel, you can't just throw out there. This can't have happened. No, you need to be sure. You have to have confirmation. Like, if you say the target will be executed. Or the hostiles will be taken down. You watch them go down. And you get confirmed kills. You don't have a semi-confirmed kill. That's not how that works. Moving forward from the two... Particular films that I wanted to address. I want to cover... How does... How do films... express war what is the effectiveness of it how do you make how do you justify it not only how do you justify it but moving forward from there how do you get people to keep going for it how do you get people to come back to it all the time Sure, it spreads propaganda, but something about losing your comrades doesn't really seem like, I don't know, I would like to do that. I'd like to watch people that I've learned to grow and become a good human with, I want to watch them die. I want to watch my friends just perish. Because some people have different beliefs than me. That doesn't seem all that fun to me. Sure, everyone's always going to express all the times that they win, but what about the times that they lose? I feel like that's something that the media doesn't cover they only cover how exaggerated and glorified things are like let's make this guy look like the hero of the world the hero on the field He was the last survivor in his platoon, and he managed to stick it out for this long, doing such and such and whatever. But they won't really cover what happened for him to be the last of his platoon. Or the last of his squad. That will just kind of get swept under the rug. Heck, they might even leave out the part where he was the last survivor. They might just say, like, he did this. Or this soldier did this. He or she did this. They're a hero for it. They did all of this cool stuff, they're a hero. But they won't cover all the negative things that happened for them to get there. I feel like that's a really bad part about it. Back in the day when war journalism was a thing, and how everything has changed now to be all the, showing all the positives. Well, not that that's really changed all that much. To get people to sign up back in World War I and Two, you had to make it look like it was going to be a good time, a good thing. Like you would be a hero and you would come back renowned for being one of the greatest people in the world. Not that that really happened, but you would have journalists that would take photographs and write about how there was so much death around them, how you'd never see one guy twice that was still alive without injuries, especially from the front line. Now everything is just shrouded in secrecy. It's that thing that no one wants to talk about. Try and sweep it under the rug so no one has to look at it or hear about it. Why do we show all this stuff? Why do we show all these kids and teenagers that it's going to be a good time? You'll come back a hero. You come back and you get treated just like everybody else. Oh, what did you do for a living? Oh, you went over to Afghanistan and shot guns at people? Well, oh, good for you. How many tours did you do? Only seven. Oh, that's not that much. I had a buddy that went and did twenty. Oh, you only did this? Well. I'm sure you were hoping for more. I feel like it's the only part that would tear people apart. But the media won't say that. No one wants to admit the hard truths. They only want to look at the beautiful lies. Or the half-truths? What is the role of the media? Making it look better than what it is. Honestly. War is not pretty. Nothing about it is. People die. Friends. Family. It doesn't have to be your friends or family. Just sit back and think about it for a minute. When you shoot someone, they are dead. They don't get to go home to their families, and their families never get to see them again unless it's six feet under. How has media coverage changed? It hasn't really. That's the honest truth about it. Everyone always wants to make it look like it's such a beautiful thing. Because lots of people don't want to face face the harsh realities of what is actually happening over there. Sure, we're actually expressing some things in war films now. Where people are dying. But it's a film. No one can really relate to that unless you were actually there or you've had that experience yourself. People like to think that they can relate. But they can That's the honest truth about it. You need to be there to know. I, myself, at 18, I know nothing. I was never there. And I wish I knew. But then I don't at the same time. That's the honest truth about it. So how has everything changed? We're taking a step, a small step, towards the side of reality. But, unfortunately, reality is all a matter of perspective. What's real to someone could be a funny story to another. Not saying that's the way it is, but it could be. In any case, that has been the Joker's podcast on the media and the military. It took a bit of a dark turn towards the end. I realized that wasn't intentional, wasn't planned, but it's the truth as I know it. In regards to the films, I seriously and honestly recommend you guys go out and watch uh, 13 hours. I feel like it's pretty good. I enjoyed it as far as an action movie goes. In any case, this will be released not too terrible, far from Christmas. So, happy holidays to you all. And since this is 2020, have as good a time as you can from home. This has been the Jokers Podcast. Thank you for listening. And we will see you next time.